you just pray with me for a second? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus, Lord. We ask for mercy, Lord. We ask for abundance of life. We ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, in each one of our hearts and minds, not just now, but throughout the day. God, we need you. We need you, Jesus, to be our teacher here today through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we ask for that, Lord, for that that grace which you are delighted to give us, Lord. Because you're a good father and you give good gifts, Lord. So I come at this time to you ask for mercy, Lord. Amen. Amen. Um, so a question to start with. By the way, you've got a handout. Um, the reason I've done that, I've, I've got quite a few quotes that I'm going to be including in this session and the next. It's kind of one message. I'm, I'm actually heading towards a, quite a simple story at the end of the day, but it's going to take a while to, to kind of work my way towards that. So what I've done is I've included all of the quotes. Anytime I read a quote from a book uh, or a catechism or whatever, it'll be in, in the notes so that we don't have to be looking at slides. You can just uh, follow along in your handout. So um, you'll see on the top there, what is the chief end of man? Somebody tell me. Man's chief end is? Glorify God. Glorify God. <laughs> to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So, uh, so about a month ago, I was, uh, I was trying to watch a little video on my computer which someone had taken on their phone and emailed to me. I was trying to actually show it to my, my son. Uh, my son Luke is 10 years old. And there was something wrong with this video and it kept sticking. And in the end, I got so frustrated with Luke just standing behind me wanting to watch this thing. And I blurted out, ah, oh, this video is corrupt. To which I immediately heard a response from Luke behind me saying, in every part of its being. <laughs> now... You may think that's a very strange little story for me to start with, but the, the purpose of that story will become clear as we progress. Um, I want to think a little bit about the, the Great Commission. Um, my topic today is Christian education within the local church, building a curriculum and approaching a, um, a kind of systematic theological education program in your churches. So let's think about the Great Commission for a second. Um, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20... In those words of Jesus, um, in the Greek, there is only one imperative verb. Um, th the English translation doesn't bring that out. Um, it's, it's the word mathetusete. Uh, that's a uh, mathetes in Greek is a, is a disciple. And so mathetusete, that Greek imperative means you, plural. We know singular plural in Greek verbs, which is nice. You, plural, make disciples. That is the the only imperative in the Great Commission. And that is done through three uh, participles. A participle, as you will remember from a trick English, is an ing verb. Walking, making, love. I love the way Nick Hardy speaks about... Anyway, let's not get into that. Uh, <clears throat> he's got this thing about talking about making love to his wife in every sermon that he... Preachers, and I always feel sorry for poor Cutty sitting on the front row as Nick Hardy gets French with the audience. Um, so, anyhow, uh, great commission. Um, three participles. Going, while going. A present tense participle in Greek has, the, has an ongoing aspect, which means while. While going, make disciples. And then two other participles follow. Baptizing and teaching. 
Um, so we are to make disciples. The primary role of ministers is to make disciples. And we are to do that using three means. By going, that's church planting, that's missionary endeavor. By baptizing, that's evangelism, that's being faithful to the sacraments, that's baptizing people into a local church. Big discussion that, baptizing into a local church. And then once someone has been reached, baptized into a local church, that last participle is the main ongoing duty of the church in making disciples, which is teaching. Teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. Now, um, a question for you. How is it that you and your church are being faithful to make disciples of the people that you lead? Um, if, a, if a disciple is someone who truly knows God and whose entire life is surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ from Monday to Sunday, someone who is mature in the faith, established in the faith, then what is it that you as a church are doing? Uh, you know, what means are you employing in order to create that kind of growth and maturity in the people that you lead? Um, what kinds of disciples are we producing? And I, I think it's a great question. Tomo put it this way in a meeting we had a couple of months ago. He said, look over your shoulder and see who's following you. A good challenge. Um, and then an equally important question follows from that. What kind of disciples are you producing? But then we've got to ask a methodological question. What does disciple making look like in your church? Because here in Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus says that the primary means by which the church is to make disciples of people after they've been converted and baptized into a local church is by teaching them. Now, let nothing I say today give you the impression that I don't believe that relationships are important or that non-doctrinal time together is not important or that, you know, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice is not important or sharing meals together, sharing life together. And in fact, we see that in the life of Jesus as he's discipling these 12 men. But my topic of discussion today is how a high view of Scripture and its power to transform us is essential to those who would be ministers in the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, I think every minister has to appreciate the importance of doctrine and a systematic doctrinal instruction program or process or strategy that that is a necessity for every minister. We must have a high view of the power of a certain body of truth that God has revealed to men in a book to bring godly change to people's lives and to their families. Um, now, without getting ahead of myself, uh, I, I just want to correct a potential error uh, and a potential misunderstanding right up front. When I refer to a systematic doctrinal education program for your church. I am not referring to what people hear on a Sunday morning. Because for most churches, what is preached on a Sunday morning is not strategically designed over the long term to cover the whole counsel of God or this body of teaching that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That body of foundational teaching that 
that is the structure of biblical revelation. Sunday sermons are, are not designed to cover that over a period of time. Often we're preaching through a topical series in our church. Or maybe the pastor is responding to a certain need within their church or within their, their community. And that's right and proper. A pastor must have the freedom to do that from his pulpit. And even when we are preaching expository sermons through books of the Bible, which I think you should do at least once a year in your church, you know, even when you are preaching through a book of the Bible, there are 65 other books of the Bible that add to this, this scaffolding of the basic structure of biblical revelation. Sunday services, Sunday you know, morning sermons simply do not provide the time to be able to deliver a systematic teaching of the great doctrines of the Bible. It's not possible. Um, and how those doctrines all relate to one another within a single unfolding story of redemptive history. And so a high view of the power of doctrine and of biblical truth to change people's lives, to transform them into disciples of Jesus Christ, will require, in my view, a far more strategic, and dare I say it, programmatic way of teaching theology to people. We can't just leave it to the pastor on a Sunday morning. There has to be a programmatic approach to theological education. And this is exactly what we see happening throughout church history. So what I want to do in this first session, as I'm sort of working my way up to building my case today, is I want us to take a little journey into the past together. And we're going to pick the story up in the 16th and 17th century Reformation, during the, the Protestant Reformation. Uh, when the, the Reformers, when they gained control of a city, and remember in those days there was one of only two churches, you were either part of the, this blossoming Reformed church in a city, which was then supported by the, the, go the government, the city council, or you were a member of the Catholic Church, um, laying aside the Eastern Orthodox Church for a second. When the reformers got control of a city and influence over the city council, which always came along with that, like a German in the, uh, sorry, Luther in the German states, for example, or uh, Ulrich Zwingli in... Um, uh, not Geneva, the other uh, uh, Swiss city, Zurich. Zwingli in Zurich, or, or Kelvin in Geneva, or John Knox in Edinburgh, or the, Puritan, the Puritans in, in, uh, in England, you know, when they chopped Charles I's head off in the 17th century, and they got control of England for that eight-year period where they had a, a parliament. And it was during that eight years that they had the, the great Westminster Assembly. Whenever the Puritans got, sorry, the Reformers got control of a city, during the Reformation, the first thing they always did was draft a statement of faith. Every single one of them. You go and look. This is a great book uh, for reference purposes, and I, I may refer to it back and forth. It's called Confessions and Catechisms of the Reformation. And it's just a sampling of some of the confessions that were developed during that time. Zwingli's, Luther's, the, etc. Um, 
So some of the, the documents developed in that time, uh, the Lutheran Book of Concord, which I'll actually have a word to you about just now, Calvin's Genevan Conf- Confession, and then when the French churches across the border started reforming, Calvin himself actually wrote a confession of faith called the French Confession for them. The Scots Confession, which uh, John Knox apparently wrote in five days, it's quite a feat. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, produced by the Westminster Assembly. Uh, the 39 Articles of the Church of England, and we could go on. And, and if you've read any of those fantastic uh, documents of faith, statements of faith, you'll know that we're talking about more than the 10 bullet point, like what we believe on the about page of our website. These were substantial documents. So here's an example so that is the, the Augsburg Confession, written by Philip Melanchthon shortly after the death of... Actually, he wrote it while Luther was still alive. It was adopted in the Book of Concord just after Luther died. So, I mean, we're talking, you know, 40, a 40-page 40 statement of faith for the Lutheran churches. They were comprehensive summaries of the major doctrines of biblical revelation, the major doctrines of the Christian faith, the scaffolding, as, as, as it were, the, 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 or the foundation stones of the major revelatory points of the Bible. Um, and they were designed, they were drafted in order to be able to make disciples of people by teaching them what the major structural theological blocks of the Bible are. Uh, They were designed to answer the question, what is it that we believe? What do we believe? And and the reason they did this, the, the reason the reformers were so zealous on this matter was because they wanted to prevent what had just happened, what they had just come out of in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church had effectively kept people ignorant of the great doctrines of the Bible. And when the reformers had come out of that, they said, never again. This is not going to happen again. We are going to empower the people. And so they drafted these majestic statements of faith and and, and crafted them in order to answer this question and make it publicly known. What do we believe? And these documents became the main tools for local Protestant ministers to teach new converts and children. These statements of faith were their tools for making disciples. Okay, then with these statements of faith now in their hand, having developed them, the next thing the reformers do, if you go and follow the story of each one of them, is they they, they ask a question. Their, Their question being, how do we get this? Into the heads and hearts of our people. It's one thing having a great statement of faith that you've worked out. Now how do, we, how do we get this into the heads and hearts of the people we are leading? And that is an incredibly important question. And I think the first answer that we, we must give to that question is we cannot get it into the hearts of our people. Only the Holy Spirit can open someone's heart... To understand and to embrace for themselves the great truths of the Bible. And it's here on this point that there is now a temptation to disregard theology and to disregard 
doctrine, doctrinal instruction, because perhaps we can see it as just dead letters on a page, you know, formulations of men, which represent nothing but like a stale, powerless orthodoxy. So there is this danger at this point, because we can't open the hearts of men and women to the truth of the Bible, that we, that we, we can somehow disregard all of this kind of doctrinal work as, as dead, as stale. But I want to remind you this morning that this was a principle that the reformers themselves were ever so aware of. And I want to read to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is from chapter 1, article 5 of the Westminster Confession. And you'll find this in your notes. So this was written by the 17th century Puritans. We may be moved and induced by... Now the Puritans are going to show us nine things by which the Word of God or or the Scriptures testify themselves to be the inspired Word of God. Nine things. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and and the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. And yet, say the Puritans, notwithstanding all of this, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And so the reformers understood, and I trust we all understand here this morning, that it is not our job to get these truths into the hearts of our people. I'm not saying don't preach with passion. I'm not saying don't live it, don't be an Ezra. I'm just saying at the end of the day, we need to know where the responsibility lies. It is the Holy Spirit who illuminates the truth of Scripture in people's hearts. But that doesn't mean that we can't get it into their heads. And so when I I framed the question earlier, I said that the reformers were asking this question. Now that they've got these statements of faith... They ask the question, how do we get this now into the heads and hearts of our people? I purposefully asked the wrong question because I wanted to make this point. You see, that wasn't actually the reformers' question. They understood this. Their question was a simpler one. How do we get this into the heads of our people? Knowing that the Holy Spirit is the only one who can inwardly illuminate their word... They knew that the responsibility was to teach doctrine. How can we teach this body of doctrine, not just to the super keen? How do we teach this body of doctrine to every single person in our churches, from children to adults? How do we teach this? And this is the very thing that Jesus instructs us to do in the Great Commission. It's it's like a man who, who sows seed, good seed, in a field and he waters it but he can't make it grow he, he goes back home at the end 
of, of a good day's work, of doing everything he can, he goes to sleep. And while he sleeps, it is God who brings life and increase and growth to the word that he's sown, to that seed he's sown. You see, there is this terrible question which does arise from certain sections of the, of the modern church that asks, why should we get all this doctrine into people's heads? What good is doctrine? I've sat under the preaching of a very well-known South African evangelist who basically said this in front of an enormous crowd of people. Ach, people aren't interested in doctrine. I mean, that itself is a doctrinal statement. It's a stupid thing to say. Why should we get this into people's heads? Isn't all this teaching of, of formulated doctrinal statements just dead orthodoxy? Isn't it just shoving the Bible down people's throats and down our children's throats so that they, when, when they leave home they'll despise the faith? Isn't all this doctrine just powerless, spiritless? Now, in, in the face of that accusation... It, it's, it's virtually impossible for me to, to overstate my frustrations. <laughs> um, because I think that objection betrays a fundamental and catastrophic misunderstanding of how God transforms people. Of how God changes people from being lost sinners all the way through to being established in the faith and disciples of Jesus Christ, mature disciples. Because while I am a committed charismatic, I still fundamentally believe that God uses truth to change people. And He does so through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what the, the Westminster Divines told us in the Westminster Confession of Faith. They said the Holy Spirit, see, the Holy Spirit changes people, yes, but He doesn't do it in a vacuum. The Holy Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He does it as He bears witness by and with the Word in our heart. He uses means to achieve His ends. Um, a couple of years ago, a guy called Carl Truman, who's the, the professor of historical theology and church history at Westminster, he wrote a book called The Creedal Imperative. And uh, while discussing the Lutheran Book of Concord... Um, he makes the following statement in that book, which I think is, is very good. The, the Book of Concord was the, the, the collection of theological documents of the, the Lutheran church that they put together shortly after Luther's death. So this is the late 16th century. It included Melanchthon's um, Augsburg Confession that I showed you earlier, together with his apology to the, the Augsburg Confession, which was kind of like a, an exegesis or an explaining of of the confession, it included the three ecumenical creeds, which as you know are the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And then it, it also included a couple of other documents, and then Luther's two catechisms, his smaller and his larger catechism. So speaking of, of that compilation of documents, Carl Truman says this. The philosophy of these documents rests upon a vision for church life, whereby the people are slowly but surely educated in the great doctrines of the faith. They are not meant to stay at the same level, at the level of knowledge they have when they first start learning, uh, listening to sermons, let alone when they are baptized. Rather, they are to grow to maturity in the faith. And an important part of that is growth 
in doctrinal knowledge. If you were to travel back in time and you were to manage to speak face to face with one of the reformers, if you could have a conversation with John Calvin or, or, or Zwingli or Luther or, or maybe Richard Baxter in England or, or even some of the guys in the First Great Awakening, George Whitfield or whatever, you could speak to one of these guys and you were to ask him that question which some sections of the church are asking, why would you want to get formulated systems of doctrine into people's heads? If you were to ask a, a reformer that question, I mean, after the guy would sort of look at you quizzically and shake his head, he would say, well, because this represents the main biblical system of doctrine. The main building blocks of what the whole Bible teaches. And therefore, it is these truths which God uses through the working of the Holy Spirit to transform people into disciples. That's why. Because doctrine's important. Uh, there's a fascinating account in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. I'm going to read to you in a second. So what's happened is Ezra is called in to read from the book of the law. Maybe Deuteronomy, maybe all five books. We're not sure. And he reads from morning to lunchtime. He reads the scriptures publicly in front of a massive crowd of people in Jerusalem, which included children, by the way. So you think your, your Bible reading goes on a little bit long in, in a Sunday morning. They've got a whole morning's worth of Bible reading. And then I want to read to you what happens after that. This is verse 7 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akib, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites... They helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And they gave the sense. And they helped the people to understand the reading. What a fascinating passage of scripture. Here we have a group of teachers after the reading of God's word. Going out into the crowd who are said to have stood in their place and helping the people to understand the sense of what they've just heard. And this is exactly what Jesus commands us to do in the Great Commission. We are to teach doctrine and its implications for life. Making disciples, according to the Great Commission, is achieved Primarily by helping people understand the scriptures. And there is a danger in our neck of the woods. When I say our neck of the woods, I mean the broader, charismatic, non-denominational world. There is this danger that um, people will look at statements of faith like this and think, well, you know, who are we? Who did they think they were to craft a statement of faith written in the words of men that, that they think help people to understand the main structure of biblical theology. Who on earth do they think they are? Who do we think we are? Surely the Bible is enough, you know? No book but the Bible. But this is in fact exactly what the Bible tells us to do. You know, and the wondrous 
strange truth of it all, and Stan and I were discussing this yesterday, is that God has ordained it the way it's supposed to work is that the teaching and the helping people to understand this this structure, the scaffolding of biblical revelation, the job to help people understand the scriptures has been given to jars of clay like me and like you and like Jeshua and like Baini and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akib and and Shabbatai and Hodiah and Messiah, and Kalita, and Azariah, and Josabad, and Hanan, and Peliah. It's a glorious thing. It's incredible. Okay, I want to talk a little bit now about what the New Testament refers to in many different ways. This, this body of doctrine that seems to have been deposited in every church that was planted. This pattern of sound words, as Paul calls it. Um, there are several verses, I've listed a whole page of, of, of them for you in your, in your notes there, which indicate that, that even in the early church, there was a pattern of doctrine and a specific strategy of how to teach it. Um, for example, Romans chapter 6, verse 17, there Paul gives thanks. And he says, uh, I want to give thanks... That you have become obedient from the heart to the pattern of teaching to which you were committed. Um, and again in 2 Timothy chapter 1.13, he uses the same kind of words. He says, follow that pattern of sound words which you heard from me. Now what, what's a pattern? I remember my mom used to sew when I was a kid. These like tracing paper things that she used to have laid out on the, on, the, on the cloth and then she'd cut around it and then sew it. And the tracing paper wouldn't be damaged so that it could be used on the next piece of cloth and that the dress would be the same the next time. That's what a pattern is. It produces the same thing over and over and over again. And Paul says when he traveled, when he led, he delivered a pattern of sound words to the churches. To the Thessalonians uh, and to the Corinthians, he calls it the traditions uh, that, that you were taught by us, which I delivered to you, he says. I delivered these traditions to you like a package, delivered them to you. I was faithful to do that. Um, another phrase that Paul uses, this is Luke's account in Acts chapter 20 when Paul called for the elders of the Ephesians church. Um, he calls it the whole council of God. Now what does he mean by the whole council of God? Well, quite clearly, Paul could not have taught the Ephesian church and the time he was with them, every single thing there is to know about God. I mean, quite clearly, what he means by the whole counsel of God was that there is a certain body of doctrine that reveals the main structure of biblical revelation, which is its center as Christ, which people need to know to be saved and then to be established in the faith. And Paul says to the the, the Ephesian elders, you know that I delivered that whole counsel to you. Um, Elsewhere in Scripture, this body of doctrine is is variously called the way of the Lord. And it's interesting, in Acts chapter 18, I'll pick up on this later, um, Apollos is said to have been catechized in the way of the Lord. That's the Greek word. Katecheo. It's called the gospel by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or the word. 
Um, it's sometimes called by him the knowledge of God. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And, and it's this knowledge of God, which are, the weapons of our warfare are mighty to defend against what? Against arguments against it. It's a body of truth. Um, Paul calls it uh, the, the, the doctrine of our Savior. Of God our Savior and his letter to Titus. The writer to the Hebrews, whoever he was, calls it the foundation upon which he wants to now build the further mature doctrines of the faith. Um, uh, Peter calls it the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls it the present truth in which you are now established. That which establishes believers, this present truth. Um, John, interestingly, the Apostle John, he calls it the teaching. And he says if anybody doesn't hold the teaching, they don't have the Father or the Son. Um, and then in, in many places, possibly the most common term for this body of teaching in, in the New Testament is just the term, the faith. And we see that I've given a number of examples in your notes there. Um, probably the, the, the most famous example is Jude chapter 3, where, where uh, Jude says, This body of teaching, the faith, was delivered to the saints once and for all, and we must contend for it. Because the church is the ground and pillar which sustains this body of truth. It is our job to maintain its purity and to pass it on to the next generation. So that 100 years from now, when all 8 billion people in the world today are dead, that next generation still has the purity of the gospel. That's good. <clears throat> so let me just be clear about what I'm, what I'm contending here. The Bible says... That although what we need to know to be saved is relatively small, a small child can be saved. What we need to be established in the faith and to become mature disciples of Jesus Christ is much larger. And it is the teaching of this body of doctrine which Jesus tasked his church with when he said that the way we will make disciples is by teaching them all that I have commanded you. And, and, I, and I hope, I don't, I want to be gentle in, in how I do this, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. That's more than the 10 bullet points on the website. It's more than that. Okay, so why do we frame doctrine in human language? Why do we create systematic formulations of doctrine and then teach them? Because we've been commanded to do so. And while we, we can't get it into people's hearts and make their hearts burn within them as, they, as the scriptures are opened, we have a responsibility, we've been commissioned by our Lord to get it into the heads of our, te of our children, to teach it to our children, to our new converts, and even to the many adult members in our church who, who perhaps haven't got it yet. Okay, so, if we are convinced of all of that, I've taken a long time to kind of make one point so far. If we're convinced that that along with the reformers, that it is a biblical thing to formulate statements of faith and then teach them, then we are in a position to ask the next question. Okay, now that the statements of the structure are in place, what's the next question? Well, how do we now get this into their heads? And this is an incredibly important Question. Now, I run a Bible college. That's what I do at Church on Main. 
we can chat further about the Bible College and, and the function that it plays. I believe it's got an incredibly important role within a local church. But a Bible college, as great as it is, is not the answer to the problem. It's not the answer to this question. As great as the Bible college is, providing a world-class theological education at a local church level virtually for free, which is what we do, despite how good it is, it's not the answer to this question. It's not the answer to our basic Christian education program need. Why? Because only 5% of your church will ever come to a Bible college class on a Monday night. We cannot expect every member of our church and new converts and all the children in our, in our um, churches to come to multiple 8 or 10 week theology classes on a Monday night for the next five years as we get through the whole curriculum. It's, it's not the answer. We need something that works firstly in the home. Where parents can teach it to their children. And then we, we need something that works also in some format within the life of the local church so that every member, every member can be taught it and every new convert can be taught it. So, back to the reformers. How do we get this into the heads of our people? And as we look into church history, in the first three or four hundred years, Augustine's time, what did they do? Well, one of the first steps they, they took was that they got children and new converts to memorize three things. Uh, the Lord's Prayer for the devotional life, the Ten Commandments for Christian living and ethics, and the Apostles' Creed for redemptive history. They got them to memorize those three, and then they had some teaching around it. That, that was their catechesis program. But then during the times of the, of the Reformation, a, a, a more comprehensive and effective teaching tools started to be used. I say started to be used, actually it was used in the first five centuries of church history and it, it fell into disfavor during the dark ages of the Catholic Church. And it was a, a, a tool that takes the statements of faith and breaks it down into a bite-sized bite manageable chunks which can be taught individually which can be expounded upon and explained, give the sense of it and then can be memorized. And of course, that tool, this interactive tool that a parent can use with the child and, some, and a pastor can use with people in his church, is called um, a catechism. And it's in a question and answer format. Um, J.I. Packer, if the name rings a bell, should do, he wrote a book with a guy called Gary Parrott in, ten, uh, in 2010 called Grounded in the Gospel, Building Believers the Old Fashioned Way. And in that book they say this, this quote is, is in your notes. The conviction of the reformers that such catechetical work must be primary is unmistakable. John Kelvin, writing in 1548 to the Lord Protector of England, declared, Believe me, Monseigneur, the Church of God will never be preserved without catechesis. The critical role of catechesis in sustaining the church continued to be apparent to subsequent evangelical trailblazers of the English-speaking world. Richard Baxter, John Owen, Charles Spurgeon, and countless other pastors and leaders saw catechesis as one of their most obvious and basic pastoral duties. If they could not wholeheartedly embrace and utilize an existing catechism, 
For such instruction, what did they do? They would adapt or edit one or would simply write their own. Interesting idea. Now, my greatest fear coming in today is that manly to share your fears. Well, I'm going to share my greatest fear with you. Was that uh, I'd come here today and I'd, I'd mention the word catechism. And just the very word would elicit a response that comes from an understandable place. Many of us are rightfully upset by what the mainline denominational churches have done over the last hundred years. The betrayal of Christ, the, the, the denial of the inerrancy of Scripture, the deadness, the, the Holy Spiritlessness of all the tradition. My fear is that I would say the word catechism and you would immediately associate that teaching tool with all of that deadness. Because it's not a common word in our circles. And in fact, for, for many people, the word catechism actually conjures up in people's minds a sort of thought of a, of a Roman Catholic brainwashing tool. And, and, and interestingly, history it tells you the opposite story. The reformers, the first thing they did, they write a statement of faith. The very next thing they do is they write a catechism in order to teach the statement of faith. And it was so effective in discipling a generation of people over that first 30 or 40 years of the Reformation that the, the Catholic Church were caught with their pants down, if we can use that expression. Uh, interesting analogy. <clears throat> yeah. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the Catholic Church were caught on the back foot and then they launched this thing called the Counter-Reformation which the Council of Trent was a big part of and out of the Council of Trent came then the Catholic Catechism but the reason we think it's a Catholic tool is because the Catholic Church have now faithfully been catechizing people for the last 500 years and the Protestants have all stopped doing it it's actually a Protestant tool anyway so that's kind of my fear so I just want to demystify the word Catechism for you. The word is a composite of two Greek words, kata, which means down from, it's a preposition, and then the word echeo, which means a sound, where we get the, the English word echo from. Yeah. Uh, so katecheo means a sound coming down from, and in, by the time the scriptures were written, the word katecheo simply meant to instruct, or perhaps more technically, to instruct orally, to instruct verbally. Um, Luke uses this word several times throughout his writings in his gospel and through the book of Acts. For example, in the opening words of his gospel, he says this, I'm writing to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were katecheistes. That's the aorist declension of katecheo. He says you, that you may know the things in which you were catechized, so, uh, yeah, so that you may be assured of these things in which you were instructed. So, so Theophilus had been catechized orally, and now Luke was writing to him to make sure that he was firm in those things that he had been catechized in. Um, he also uses the word in Acts chapter 18, speaking of Apollos, he says, This man, Apollos, had been instructed, your English version will probably say that's the word katechemenos, that's the same, just a declined version of katecheo, which means catechized. This man had been catechized in the way of the Lord. He'd been instructed. 
Uh, yet imperfectly, Priscilla and Aquila had to kind of correct things which I think was the baptism in the Holy Spirit. You know, that's another uh, discussion. Paul uses the word several times throughout his writing. Most notably, this is a famous one, Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. This is a famous one because in that verse, Paul uses the word, two different declensions of the noun version of the word, to refer to both the students and the teacher. So in that verse, uh, you probably recognize that it's something like this. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with the one who teaches. Well, actually, if you, if you just translate it straight using the word catechesis or catechism, the word, uh, that would read, let the catechized share in all good things with the catechist. It's the word katechumenos and katechuntai. So this is a biblical word. Okay, I need to, I need to close um, this first session. Much of this is just me preparatory. In, in the second session, I'm, I'm going to target catechisms particularly and directly, okay? I just want to close by, by reading a quote by J.I. Packer. And, and in this book, they're, they're urging church leaders to reconsider introducing catechisms back into their church life. It's worth reading. And I say this. Many evangelical churches are in deep need of change today. The surest way forward is to carefully contemplate the wisdom of the past. We are not, as it turns out, the first ones who have ever had to wrestle with the issue of how to grow Christian communities and Christian individuals in contrary cultures. We are not the first to wonder about how to nurture faith in the living God and foster obedience to His way. It's not only contemporary church leaders who can teach us how to be relevant and effective in ministry today. We urge concerned church leaders to, in the language of Jeremiah 6.16, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. There is so much wisdom for us in the practices of those who have gone before us if we will only humble ourselves to listen and learn. One of the saddest things that happened in our non-denominational charismatic neck of the woods is because we rightfully rebelled against the deadness and liberality of the mainline denominations, unfortunately we threw out so much good stuff when we threw out the deadness. We, we, we have this temptation to think new is better. And Packer is saying to us, just stand by the path and look. Ask for the ancient way, the good way. Sadly, too many evangelicals are like the people of Judah to whom Jeremiah spoke. We hear the counsel to look to the old paths and walk in the good way. But convinced that the newer ideas are always better than those of the ancient and good way, we stubbornly resolve, as we read at the end of Jeremiah 6, we will not walk in it. And I really hope that that won't be true of the churches of the global project. Um, after the break, we're going to then tackle catechisms more directly. Um, we've got about 10 or 12 minutes. Tom, I'm not sure you, what you want to do with the time now. I have put some group discussions, questions in your notes. Maybe you want to just make a comment publicly. Maybe we'll want to leave it till the end of the second session. That's totally up to you. Maybe there is some value getting into threes and fours so that each person can share their opinion um, and if you want to use those questions as a, as a help, you're welcome to do so. What we do, we take a water break now, loo break. We come back, we have the second session, and then we handle the questions in one go. Okay. Yeah, be nice okay, good. Thank you. Thank you.